The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell Christ our living head Will one day come again To judge the living and the dead I believe and trust in Him I will trust in my Redeemer Sing of His love that lasts forever Know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my foundation Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In the previous nine episodes, we took an in-depth examination of the various types, shadows, and the substance which were revealed by God through the book of Exodus, beginning with chapter 1, and continuing through chapter 19. In doing so, we saw how God used the historical saga of Israel's entrance, bondage, and eventual deliverance from Egypt by Moses 
parallels and in fact foreshadows its substance depicting all God's people who have entered into bondage of sin and are delivered from their sin through grace, by faith, in the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. In the last episode, we concluded with God calling Moses and his instructions to Moses to begin to prepare his people chosen to receive his commandments and to sanctify and separate themselves. In the remaining episodes, we move forward through the next ten chapters of Exodus. Moses ascends Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments, the various ordinances, the plans for the tabernacle in the wilderness, as well as the various ceremonial observances from God. While all of these topics have a rightful place of importance in the study of God's Word, we are here focused on the topic of Moses, the type and substance to Jesus, our Deliverer. Consequently, as this study winds its way forward, we will be at times taking a more summarized look at Moses' life, which covers Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. With this much material, I am inclined to be selective in order to keep the remaining portions of this study from becoming too lengthy. In reviewing the last ten chapters of Exodus, we see that we have the number ten, which stands for divine completeness. And for ten chapters, we have the Ten Commandments, the various civil ordinances, as well as God's law in general. Having focused on so much of the law, it may seem like we have digressed to go from talking about the church's final status of standing clothed perfectly before God in heaven, to spending ten chapters delving into every nuance of the law, but it is not. In fact, we are not departing back into legalism. Rather, God is revealing the substance of what it looks like when all law is fulfilled in and through a relationship with His Son, Jesus, and His completed work. Remember, what we see and hear of God's law in its perfection occurs while Moses ascends to God on the mountain. This foreshadows Jesus, the perfect mediator who kept the law on earth and ascended to God the Father, where he intercedes on our behalf. As he does so, those who have placed their faith in his finished work may also boldly enter God's presence through his righteousness. Thus, these ten chapters are intended to be a schoolmaster to convict us all of our utter failure and shortcomings on our own, while showing us the hope that is to come as we who are God's people stand before God's throne, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Just as God reveals a relationship made possible through mediation by His Son, Jesus, God also reveals the hopeless situation of all men apart from that relationship. We see that during the period while Moses, i.e. the type of Jesus, communed with God, despite the many ways in which God had mightily revealed himself in the past, many of the Israelite people, just like man today, stubbornly maintained a heart and mind of rebellion. Many of the Israelite people preferred to return to the carnality of Egyptian living rather than to trust God. In this case, Exodus chapter 32 records how the Israelites constructed a golden calf to worship as their God, who they thanked in place of the true God who delivered them from Egypt. This demonstrates the constant tendency of all men throughout all time. 
The glory, power, mercy, and love of the true God is there for all the world to see. Yet, despite all his revelation, instead of giving honor, glory, praise, and worship to God, man prefers to give honor to the works of his own hands. Many prefer to return and remain in the bondage of sin, which is the type of Egypt. Many prefer to give worship to the creation more than the creator. As we study the events happening on and around Mount Sinai, we learn by taking note of several details. We must remember that nothing which happens ever comes as a surprise to God. When God was delivering the Ten Commandments to Moses, He knew that His people for whom they were intended were already rebelling against Him. God knew that His commandments were already being broken in spirit and deed before the tablets were broken physically by Moses. Since God knew this, we must ask why He took the time and effort to deliver them to begin with. Either we must assume God had an oops moment, or God had a purpose. We know that God never has an oops moment, so what is His purpose? The answer is that because God knows everything, he knows that every man's nature is to sin. God didn't have to wait until the Apostle Paul wrote Romans to read and know that all have sinned and come short of God's glory, or that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. God was thoroughly aware that there was and never has been, nor never will be, any man except Jesus the Christ, who is able to keep 100% of God's law 100% of the time. This being a fact, we must ask why God would write the Ten Commandments and deliver them to Moses to give to his people. If God's law is holy and perfect and all men are by nature imperfect, then the two can never coexist without some change in nature by one or the other. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul reveals God's purpose and motive for the giving of the law. Quote, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Unquote. Thus, in order to properly put things into context, let us digress and recall where the issue of sin originated. In the third chapter of Genesis, Satan posed the lie that mankind could be like God, given only the knowledge of good and evil. Boiled down, the theory Satan espoused was that by having a clear standard which articulates a distinction between good and evil, man would have the knowledge necessary to be good like God. What Satan failed to mention was that God is not just good, he is perfect. God doesn't excel in righteousness, power, and glory once in a while, or more often than not. God is the standard of all righteousness, and it is He who stands so alone throughout all eternity, with none whom He can compare Himself except, perhaps, an antithesis. Despite this axiomatic truth, mankind has totally bought into Satan's lie with almost every facet of his being. Today, there are countless industries dedicated to the idea of self-improvement for mankind. 
In every case, we find at its heart that the same attempt to sustain ourselves by ourselves, using the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. By virtue of Satan's lie, knowledge became synonymous with righteousness. By man's estimation, righteousness is attainable and is not the issue for concern. Instead, the issue according to man is knowledge. If man could only obtain enough knowledge to truly understand good and evil, then good, i.e. righteousness, would follow naturally, and evil could be avoided. But what has 6,000 years of human history taught man? Have the various academic, scientific, and other advancements to human knowledge given anyone the ability to choose righteousness and to become like God? Has anyone save Jesus been able to avoid 100% of sin 100% of the time? Has anyone been able to do 100% good 100% of the time? No. Despite 6,000 years of accruing knowledge, we still lack the ability to choose 100% good and eliminate 100% evil. If anything, we have only excelled in our ability to sin and rebel against God. We have law enforcement agencies in the judicial system whose entire mission is to apprehend and punish those who break the law. Despite the billions which are expended, sin continues. We have various institutions dedicated to education and instruction which are available from birth until death. Yet, despite all the myriad get-out-the-information mechanisms in place, we still face bias, ignorance, and misinformation. Many of the self-evident truths we hold dear in one segment of society cannot be agreed upon or tolerated in another segment. In the end, the only universal constant truth is that with man, there is no universal constant in truth. However, when we look at the New Testament book of Romans, Paul uses the term quote-unquote schoolmaster regarding the law. The purpose, role, and goal of a schoolmaster is to instill the necessary information for the success of the pupil. The schoolmaster uses every resource available to teach every student the knowledge they need in order to advance their understanding and achieve their goals. Paul further identifies the law, the Ten Commandments, as the schoolmaster. Lastly, Paul identifies the central goal of the schoolmaster, which is to bring the pupil to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to the end that Christ will, by his grace, justify them by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. Thus, in terms of definitions, Scripture clearly identifies the law, i.e. the Ten Commandments, as God's schoolmaster in the above capacity. The law is the raw, unvarnished standard reflective of God's holiness and purity which stands forever to give the knowledge dividing good and evil. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 32, we read, quote, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, unquote. Now, it may likely be that what we read here is literal, 
and the people were without clothing. But looking past the literal, we may see the type intended which teaches that in every case, whenever we as humans are confronted by God's standard of holiness and we attempt to compare ourselves to that standard based upon our own works, we find ourselves naked and ashamed before God, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. Like the Israelites who waited at the foot of Mount Sinai, we discover that we have broken God's law even as it is delivered to us. Moses is in this type, the type of Christ, who mediates between man, who symbolically camps at the foot of God's holy mountain, and God the Father who sits on his throne in the heavenlies. Though the Israelites were chosen to be separated to God, they, like all mankind, find themselves completely separated from God by sin. Exodus reveals that God's standard of perfection and holiness sets boundaries around the mountain where God dwells. God warns his people through Moses to purify themselves, yet none of them are able to approach God upon penalty of death, save Moses, who is the type of Jesus. His reason for this is that the hearts, love, and minds of mankind are still in the heart of Egypt. God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but God would have to do another miracle by his grace to bring Egypt out of his children. Essentially, the drama which unfolded in the Garden of Eden demonstrated one thing very clearly. Within the judicial supreme court of human affairs, Satan brought forth his opening statement, making the case that man has the ability to be like God in every sense by having knowledge of good and evil. By knowing the law, man can follow the law and achieve God's holiness by conforming to the law using his own inherent capabilities outside of God. Mankind has since foolishly accepted the argument and its premise. After buying the argument, mankind has attempted to carefully pack Satan's legal case-in-chief into his theological briefcase and has brought what he believes to be a winning closing argument before God, who is the supreme judge in eternity. Man loves to place his arguments of self-achievement on display before God. After man has proudly made his closing argument before God, God then places the Ten Commandments into evidence and compares his perfect standard of holiness in contrast to man's argument. Immediately, the revealed law of God's holiness and perfection completely and forever destroys every pretense of any claim of goodness on the part of man. This gestalt realization and understanding by way of God's law is precisely the point and purpose for which God reveals his schoolmaster law. In this courtroom, God is both judge and jury. After God makes his closing argument, there is nothing left to say. The evidence and the argument is so overwhelmingly convicting that the judge, jury, and even the accused himself must admit guilt. The merit of God's case is so devastating that it is meant to produce not only conviction, but repentance of heart, mind, and spirit.
The knowledge of the law combined with an understanding of our inability to maintain it at any time should logically lead man to realize the futility and hopelessness of its ability to facilitate us becoming like God. In this court, we should logically be compelled to throw ourselves at the mercy of God the judge. We should say, God, help me. I am hopelessly impure and sinful. I see the law, which is the shadow of your perfect and holy righteousness. Woe is me. I am undone. I am not able to attain it. I am lost. Once the sincerity of this truth takes hold in our heart, God is not only judge, jury, and prosecutor. God is ultimately a redeemer. At the last hour, when all appeals by man have failed, God stands ready to grant clemency to the condemned. At that very moment, we are set free by the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ, who by His grace, through faith, imputes His righteousness to our account. Jesus takes our place at the foot of the bench, the very throne of God the Father. Jesus willingly pays the penalty of death for our sins, which we stand convicted for. While Jesus is slain on our behalf, we are set at liberty on his behalf, despite the reality that we are truly guilty on all charges. Again, it is worth repeating that in the substance and in the type, the law stands and comes unblemished from the heart and nature of God's perfect nature and character. The only place where the letter and the spirit of the law is perpetually and perfectly kept is with God himself on the mountain, the type of his throne room. The moment the law is presented before man, the law stands broken by man's sinful nature. Exodus chapter 32 verse 26 continues saying, quote, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Having reached the crescendo of the bad news that God's law stands broken upon receipt and that no man can now enter God's presence to enjoy fellowship due to sin, What better verse than the one above to deliver the type of the good news? Here, Moses, the type of Jesus, the deliverer, stands at the gate of the camp of those who would be God's people. Moses delivers the answer in type to John chapter 10, verse 9, which says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture, unquote. Or John chapter 14, verse 6, quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, unquote. Now all Israel had the potential to come to Moses just as all God's people have the opportunity to come to Jesus. Yet, in the end, it is the sons of Levi who are the priestly class who gather themselves to Moses. This, like Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, reminds us, quote, 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Unquote. In verse 27, Moses commands Levi to gird their swords and to go throughout the camp and to slay the disbelieving among their own brethren. Verse 28 records the results. Quote, and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Unquote. Leaving this verse, some would walk away in dismay, disillusion, or confusion as to the sorrow of 3,000 people dying because of their disbelief and rebellion. However, Thanks be to God that he keeps perfect books, and while some may forget, he is faithful to plant where the seed falls. In this case, in God's time, the type comes full circle to the time after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read the following, recalling the Apostle Peter's preaching at Pentecost and the birth of God's people, the church. Quote, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Unquote. So 3,000 perished because of their choice to rebel and refuse to come to Moses, the type of Christ. While in due time, 3,000 were made alive because of their choice by grace, through faith, to come to Christ. Yet this is not an isolated event because the same God who took and restored 3,000 souls continues to stand, calling those who would to come to him in faith and be restored to life everlasting. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 say this, quote, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, shall never die. Believest thou this? Unquote? This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part 11. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com Thank you for listening. Trust in